The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Genesis 11 Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. We find in today's text that even good people can make poor choices and go off the rails. One of the proofs that supports the historical validity of the Bible is that its heroes other than Jesus, are shown with their warts, shortcomings, and failures. If this were a man-made piece of literature, it would tend to only reflect the favorable stories. But we saw Noah last week in worship. We see him this week in shame. The software that I use for Bible study has a forum where the users can help each other with questions. And one user wanted input from the variety of denominations about what a person needs to do to be saved. And since the software is used by people of all different denominations, some denominations said, well, it's up to the church to disperse salvation. Some claim that water baptism is necessary. 
Others claimed a various combination of you must believe, you must confess, you must repent, you must call on the name of the Lord. But one contributor this week claimed that the first question, what must one do to be saved, is a faulty question. Because in his mind, nobody needs to be saved. In this man's thought, man is basically good and only an evil God would hold man accountable for the way that he was made. This anonymous user is 180 degrees wrong. The reason I chose this series in Genesis is because I believe the Spirit of God wants us to be able to point to the Bible's example to prove that while God designed a perfect world, Man chose a detour that has been a historic downfall. Man is not basically good. Man is basically selfish. We need this message from the Bible because it is not one that we will hear in popular media. It's not a message that we will hear from society as a whole. And Noah is just one example. After spending 100 years in obedience to God, building the ark, experiencing the protection of God for a year inside of the ark, he comes out worshiping God with sacrifices. But a few years later, I say a few years because it takes time to plant a vineyard, to grow it until it produces grapes, and to allow the wine of those grapes to ferment, causing drunkenness. Somewhere between coming out of the ark with the heart of worship, Noah got distracted. Noah is discreetly described for us as being drunk and uncovered. Uncovered is a discreet, polite way of saying he committed some sexual escapade. Somewhere along the line, Noah exchanged the joy of fellowship and worship with God for the temporary happiness of worldly desires. And today's three chapters, yes, I watched the clock, yes, it is three chapters, it reveals for us how even righteous Noah got swept up in the downfall of humanity. The record of Noah's descendants connects us to Abraham, whom God chooses to be distinct from the world. And next week, Lord willing, we will look at that call of Abraham, which concludes our study of ancient humanity. But in today's text, in front of us, we see that a party lifestyle yields consequences. 
the pleasure of Noah's worship and God's provision in chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, becomes earthly. And Noah turns to intoxication and sexuality as a source of pleasure. Noah had three sons. One of those sons, the youngest, chose to mock his father's debauchery. And when a people glories in that which is raunchy, it leads to their demise. When we make little of sexual sin, that sin grows. And when it grows, it enslaves. And I am convinced that is why the curse falls on Canaan instead of Ham. Ham is the one who saw his father, but it's Ham's son, Canaan, who receives the curse in front of us. Because I believe when we make little of sin, when we allow debauchery to increase, it affects our children even more than it affects us. As a matter of fact, as it will grow, we will see the, um, the attitude towards sexual sin that grows so that the Canaanites, by the time of the conquest, when the children of Israel went into the promised land, the Canaanites will be examples of all sorts of pagan behaviors because they didn't turn away from it when it was just a bud. If this event were to happen today, Ham, the youngest son, is the one who would have seen the event. He would have pulled out his cell phone so that he could capture and post that video to Facebook, to Instagram, to Snapchat or TikTok for, for all to see. Can you see this foolishness that my father did? But Japheth and Shem, are the ones who would be moved by compassion. They would privately try to help Noah without drawing attention to him or to themselves. While Ham says, see what dad did? Japheth and Shem quietly cover him to help him to avoid embarrassment. Now, as a side note, whenever we hear about this curse on Canaan or the curse of Ham, there was an older thought that this curse that is mentioned is somehow connected to the dark skin of Africans. And some have seen this verse about the curse on Canaan as biblical support for the enslavement of Africans. But the curse is not on Ham, it's on the Canaanites. And this enslavement is not talking about American slavery. It's a forecast to the days following the Exodus when the descendants of Abraham would take possession of the land, of the promised land, that had been occupied by the Canaanites and is now occupied by the descendants of of Abraham, who we will see is a descendant of Shem. This is about the Canaanite sexual ethic. It's not about African skin color. King David, 
hundreds of years later, will observe the collapse of Saul's kingdom, and he will exclaim, Oh, how the mighty have fallen! Oh, how the Canaanites have fallen! On the contrary, Solomon, David's son, the son born to David and Bathsheba after the son conceived out of wedlock dies, Solomon writes, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We have the contrast. Are we going to seek that which is righteous, like Japheth and Shem? Or are we going to brag about the debauchery as Ham and his descendants? In the Word of God, we find that the themes of blessing and cursing occur throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We saw it in chapter 3. God wanted to bless, but man disobeyed and experienced curse. We see it in Genesis chapter 4. Two sons who offered different offerings to the Lord, and one was blessed, the other was cursed. We see it in the descendants of Cain in chapter 4, and in the descendants of Seth in chapter 5, who are blessed. In chapter 6 through 8, we see that those who were in the ark were blessed, those who were outside of the ark were cursed and died. We see it in chapter 8, verse 20, where Noah, as a worshiper, is blessed. But in chapter 9, verse 20, Noah, as a drunkard, is associated with curses. Notice, Ham saw the wickedness and told about it. But it is Ham's son who is the one who is cursed. Now, commentators in Jewish tradition read many different ideas into the word that he saw his father's nakedness, or he saw his father uncovered. And they read all sorts of ideas into what was uncovered. But I see in this text, the danger is not in what he saw. The danger is that he chose to tell. Some things are better off left unspoken. You don't need to say everything you know in order to be honest. I think Ham had an appetite for that which was dark. And that appetite for the darkness multiplied in his sons. And when we make decisions about righteousness and wickedness, our decisions have consequences. Those consequences we see in three different types of men in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to them. The natural person is the person who um, is, he's never heard of the good news of Jesus Christ, or he's never responded to the invitation to trust Christ. And because he hasn't heard, or because he hasn't responded, the natural man just doesn't get it. 
The person outside of Christ, in Linnaeus' picture, never turns into what God expects him to become. The person who is natural outside of Christ just doesn't understand. So we see the natural man. And placing your trust in the gospel makes you a new creation with a new destination. But we still have the old nature until we are set free from our human bodies. Every single one of us at one time was natural. We didn't understand the things of God. But if you have placed your trust in Christ, that puts you into one of the next two camps. The camps that are described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, or other translations say carnal. That's why the C in your outline. In other words, infants in Christ. Some of you are natural, you just don't understand the things of God. Some of you have trusted God, and right now you are spiritual, and others of you have trusted, but you are acting fleshly or carnal. The carnal man is the one who has made a decision for Christ, but he still lives for self. He trusts Christ for heaven. But I trust me for here. The spiritual man, though, is the man who sets his mind and his heart and his affections on the things of God. More than what makes me happy here on earth, what I really desire is the things of God. That is the spiritual man. And if you want to experience blessings, trust Christ. Surrender to the Spirit's promptings. If you wish to experience curses, and that is your choice, continue to make selfish choices. Either as the natural man or as the fleshly carnal man, you can make those choices, but you will experience the pain that goes along with that. As God commanded Noah's sons to fill the earth, their families then begin to disperse in the next verses. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit as we see, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 9, all the way through the end of chapter 10, Noah's three sons move out in three directions. In chapter 10, we have kind of a survey, a horizontal survey of the nations. It, it, it's a way of saying the Israelites one day is going to be at war. The Israelites one day are going to do battle. And, and these are the enemies that you can expect to do battle with. Noah's son Japheth headed north up into what is now called the, the Turks, the Greeks, the Europeans. Basically, he's saying to the children of Abraham, you're not going to do battle with Japheth's descendants. They're going to be way up in the north. However, if you read in Ezekiel chapter 38, in the end times, those peoples of the north are going to come down and to do battle with the people of God. So Japheth is the Greeks and the Europeans. Secondly, we read about Ham. 
Ham, descended, or his descendants, headed to the east and to the south within the Mesopotamia region. And thirdly, we read that Shem headed to the northern elevations between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So one headed way north, one headed to the south and the east, and one headed to the region between the rivers at the higher elevations. That's chapter 10 in a summary for you. As the family tree then is spreading, one family begins to think for themselves, and they choose to disobey God's instructions. And because they chose to disobey God's instruction, then God confuses and calls according to his plan. And in chapter 11, we begin to read that human ingenuity is foiled. If we compare chapter 10, verse 5, with chapter 11, verse 1, we know that chapter 11 happens before the spread of chapter 10 is complete. So there's no conflict between where 10 says that they all had their own language and 11 says they all spoke one language. It's because the two chapters overlap. They're not chronological. But if we look at chapter 10, verse 4, God tells the people that they should scatter. But verse 4 says they chose not to scatter, not to fill the earth as God commanded. They simply began to decide for themselves, um, let, let, let's kind of hang out right here. Instead of scattering where we'll become watered down, Let's stay together. Let's make a name for ourselves because we can make a reputation for ourselves that is stronger than what God would do if we obeyed him. And so it says, actually, we're going to kind of become gods ourselves. We don't need God to make mountains. We'll make mountains. And we don't need the rocks and the stones that God created. We will bake our own bricks. We will write the name of our God, Marduk, on those bricks. And we will build those bricks into a a man-made mountain. And at the top of that mountain will be a synagogue for our God, Marduk. The people thought that their reputation, building a name for ourselves could accomplish more than obedience to God. This kind of reminds me of the World Trade Center towers. The World Trade Center towers were brought down by our enemies because in the eyes of the world, Western power was depicted in the height of the towers. Those Americans think they're really something that they can build a tower. Watch us. We'll flatten their tower and prove that they're not as great as they thought they were. That kind of has images of what happens right here in Babel. The people said, we're going to build our own mountain all the way up to the heavens and the top of it will be the presence of our gods. We don't need God. We will do it ourselves. And rather than destroy the peoples for this selfish thought, because God had just promised 
When they're wicked, I won't destroy them by flood. So rather than destroy them for acting selfishly, God says, I won't destroy them, I'll confuse them. God confuses their language, and actually, if you understand Hebrew, you would read that there's a little bit of a word play at here in the, the name of the place being Babel and the confusion of the language. Because the word that God confused them in Hebrew is the word Shambalal. And the name of the place, Shema Babel. And so he simply says, Shambalel, Shema Babel. And so it would be a, a clever wordplay if you understood this language. And we see that God says, you think you're clever? Watch this. And he dispersed the peoples by their language. And sometimes confusion has to happen so that we can value the positive when we dream of peace coming out of that confusion. See, I, like you, long for a day when there is no more pain, when every tear is wiped away. But right here and right now, we have too many reminders of the painful negative racial tensions. And negative racial tensions all started because humanity got too big for his britches and tried to find success apart from the good hand of God. Because of our preparations for the gospel concert a week ago, I did not learn of the Buffalo Massacre until after last Sunday's service. And that massacre becomes just the latest demonstration of how racial confusion causes conflict among humanity. When man tries to act independent of God, it leads to confusion. And the scars from God confusing the peoples and all of our racial tensions are painful reminders that we need to seek God. Not within white man, not within brown man, not within yellow man. We need to seek God from outside of us beyond us for when we seek god outside of us then the confusion is dealt with because god launches a sovereign plan in the 10th verse of chapter 11 through verse 26 now i say sovereign plan you may remember our theological word of the week a few weeks ago Sovereign means that God has the right and the ability to intervene whenever and however he chooses. So God disperses man for our own good, and then God has a sovereign plan to pull us back together. Just as Genesis chapter 5 connects Adam with Noah... The second part of chapter 11 then connects Noah with Abraham, who becomes the patriarch of the people who received the Torah. We will see next week, Lord willing, how all the peoples of the world, Jews and Gentiles alike, are blessed through Abraham, God's sovereign plan. Genesis 5 through 11, this series that we've been studying since February, tells us how the Jewish people find themselves in God's plan. 
Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation 21, our next sermon series, tells how humanity, all of us, both Jew and Gentile, how we find ourselves in God's plan. God's plan is that man acts selfishly, but God intends a way to bring peace out of the confusion of our arrogance. When man becomes impressed with himself, it leads to confusion, to division, and to conflict. Is that not the life that we live? But when man surrenders to Christ, all the peoples of the world can find a common home. I see God has a plan. God has a plan that brings peace out of confusion. And God's plan is that of the cross of Jesus Christ. For we will see soon this plan explained in both Testaments. In Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abraham, and God says to Abraham, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you are Jewish, you are blessed in Abraham. If you are not Jewish, you are blessed through a descendant of Abraham. All the families of the world shall be blessed through a descendant of Abraham. Then we see in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 3, Peter says, The covenant that God made with your fathers, he said to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. See, the value to us knowing what these chapters say is that now we can approach our neighbors with truth. The truth isn't that I am any more or less wicked than you are. The truth is that all of us are selfish, and God has made a way for all of us to receive peace in a confused world. The secret is not in any goodness that I may have. The gospel, the sovereign plan of God, is that God loves each of you enough to provide a way for you and for any person that you may encounter. The offspring of Abraham who is promised in Genesis chapter 12 is Jesus himself. For the scripture tells us in Matthew Chapter 1, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? He will save people from their sins. This is the sovereign plan of God. We have to understand where we have gone astray, and we have to understand that God sent Jesus to pull us back into that place of peace that he intends. And after Jesus died, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven, we then have an experience that's called the day of Pentecost. Five days after the resurrection, Pentecost undoes Babel. Babel spread out the people with confusion. Pentecost gathers the people in peace. Because beginning in verse 5 of Acts chapter 2, we read, that now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And at this sound, the sound of the Holy Spirit coming upon the followers of Christ, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was now hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And then how is it that we are hearing each in his own native tongue? Then verses 10 and 11 talk about the people being from all of the nations of the known world. And then he picks up the story in verse 11. There were both Jews and proselytes. There were both Cretans and Arabians. And now we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. When man said, I can do for myself better than God can do for me, man was dispersed and confused. When we come to Christ and say, Christ does for us what we can't do for ourselves, then we hear within our native tongue, we hear within our own language that we can be one people united in God. See, Genesis 9 through 11 is not only a description of disobedience and dispersal. Genesis 9 through 11 set the stage for deliverance that is only available in Jesus, the Christ. How many of you have heard the phrase, Ollie, Ollie, oxen free? It's, it's the phrase behind a song that Brendan and Macy shared with me about a year and a half ago. Ollie, Ollie, oxen free is a catchphrase that is used in children's games, such as hide-and-seek or capture-the-flag or kick-the-can, to indicate that the players who are hiding can now come out into the open without losing the game. Or, alternatively, ollie ollie oxen free means that the game is entirely over. Now, I never understood this talk about oxen, so in my um, Kansas way, it was ollie ollie income free. The actual dictionary of American regional English says the phrase was probably originally derived from all ye, all ye outs in free. In other words, anyone who is out can come in without penalty. Ollie, ollie, oxen free is the cry of Pentecost. All of us who have been separated by our disobedience, by our arrogance, by our selfishness, because of Christ and what he has accomplished, those of us who are hiding in our shame can now come in free and be one people united in God. Today's final song is a song that demands a response. If you are going to honestly sing these words that we're about to sing, number one, if you have never trusted Jesus for salvation, today you can say yes to him and become free. If you have already been saved, you can say yes to spreading the good news to those who need to hear. We're going to sing number 400.